This is Lee Cure, a podcast for conversations from the heart of the continent on Indigenous languages, music, culture, and art in the Age of Reconciliation. Thank you, merci, and miigwech for listening. Anin Oju Tansi. I am Brina Link, the communications assistant for Lee Cure Heart of the North. And hello, I'm Hannah Connolly, the production assistant. To give some context to this podcast, Lee Cure, Riel's Heart of the North is a dramatic musical written by Métis poet and librettist Dr. Suzanne Steele and composer Neil Wisenzel. The words Lee Cure mean the heart in the Métis language of Machif. Dr. Steele is writing the text of Lee Cure in the indigenous language of Anishinaabe Moin, which is the language of the Soto and Ojibwe peoples, and three dialects of Lee Michifs, as well as French and English. This project is in collaboration with a large team of Indigenous translators, Deborah Beach Ducharme, Donna Beach, Dr. Agathe Chartrand, Joyce Dumont, Dr. Lorraine Cachula-Vallée, Suzanne Zecca, Dr. June Bruce, Jules Chartrand, and Vernon de Montigny, as well as our archivist, Vic Froze. This musical explores the love and lives of Louis Riel's pre-resistant life the Métis and kin of the heart of the 1870s continent on fire with change. This production honors the enduring strength of Indigenous and Métis women. Hello everyone, thank you for listening to episode 6 of our podcast. Today's conversation will be a little different than usual, as my co-host Brina and I are going to be interviewed by co-director of the Leak Here production, Dr. Suzanne Steele. I won't say too much to introduce this episode, but I hope that you learn a little bit about the rationale behind our jobs as research assistants, and also get a window into the experience of young people seeking to work for reconciliation. Okay, good morning, women in the center, the heart of, of uh, the continent. Um, I just uh, wanted to do a little preamble, a little warm-up here, and mm-hmm. to welcome our guests um, who are listening in on this podcast. Today we have something a little unusual in that we're going to have actually a, a conversation between um, the two research assistants and the hosts of this podcast, uh, Brina Link and Hannah Connolly, and me, uh, Suzanne Steele, Dr. Steele. Um, Neil uh, Weisensell had to uh, uh, leave um, and so isn't available for today's, but I'm sure he'll join in at a later time. So today, I think uh, the goal of today or sort of the adventure we're on today is just to get a little bit of background on you two and maybe your points of view of this particular project and the podcast, and Mm -hmm. maybe a little bit of philosophy that you might have, uh, and some of the perhaps things that you've learned through this process. Um, I just wanted to say on behalf of of myself and Neil and the project, how grateful we are to have two absolutely uh, innovative, quick responding uh, uh, research assistants, you know, I don't think we could do anything without you at this point, and especially in the context of this uh, pandemic. So anyway, I just wanted to say good morning to you guys. So how are you guys doing this morning? I'm doing good. I went on a little walk this morning in the forest, 
outside of CMU, which was really beautiful. There's still lots of wildflowers around, so I enjoyed that. Oh, nice. I'm doing pretty great myself. Um, today we have our leadership training for CMU, which is a pretty exciting project to get into for the upcoming mm-hmm. year. So, yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, so, I, you know, I just wanted to check in with you guys, as we always do with every every time we have a meeting. How do you feel about that? You know, when we have a meeting, an in quotes business meeting, and and we check in with you. How do you feel about that? I think it's really great because as an Indigenous project, relationship building, like Dr. Steele has always told us, that's really important to her, and it also resonates importantly with me, is to develop a community and a relationship. So checking in on each other to making sure we're okay is one of the one step forward that we can do with relationships, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, and I think especially in the context of a pandemic where we're not actually seeing each other that much, um, yeah, it's good to just take a little bit of time to share about the day-to-day life that we're going through even as we're working. Right. Well, that's an interesting thing that you, um, you uh, which kind of makes me uh, want to ask yeah. another little question. And, and you know, I, ha- I was looking through, you know, doing some background research as <laughs> I've taught you guys to do your background <laughs> research on your interviewees, which, by the way, you guys are nailing it. You're, you're awesome. Um, so I was looking back on some of the early communications we've had. And here's an here's a email from uh, May 6th that Neil wrote to Hannah. And I'm sure, Brina, you can appreciate it. It says, Suzanne is on an island on the West Coast and a storm took down her Wi-Fi. Today's interviews have been cancelled. Can you please let me know your availability for Friday starting from noon onwards? So, you know, the reality is that we've never all been in the same room. And in fact, uh, Brina, I, I believe I met you. Is that correct? Yes, we met at CMU when you came to speak at one of our Indigenous lunches about the production. And we met there, mostly through Wendy Craker. Right, right. Okay. And Hannah and I have, have never actually met no. face-to-face. So, um, you know, during the, during the pandemic, you guys have been working remotely. And how has that been for you? Um, for me, it's been a little bit of a self-adjustment. For I've never had to train myself just by myself. Usually I've had people train me, so it's been a little different. But... Honestly, once you get in the role of things and with the flow, it's kind of, it's pretty, it's pretty good, actually. (laughs) Right, right. How about you, Hannah? Yeah, I think that there's a little bit more of a challenge to, like, separate work time from other time when I'm working from home. Um, But it's been good for me to kind of try and discipline myself in that way, since I don't have a supervisor that's actually present. Um, yeah, just a different kind of time management. Well, that's, that's actually, I can really identify with that, you know, because it's all about boundaries. And I, I work for myself and have worked for myself for many, many years. And so it's that boundaries, you know, between work and, and home. So yeah, that, that's great. So I actually think this is setting you guys up for a good work life, you know, if you can, if you can begin to manage <laughs> this. Um, I just wanted to, uh, one of the other things that we do, you know, um, typically when we meet new people, or certainly, um, you know, with your interviews that I've noticed is you ask a little bit about your backgrounds and things like that. You know, would you feel comfortable, uh, Brina, telling us about Agnes Boulette and, 
and you know, and why you are particularly dedicating this project to her, as sure. I am, I'm dedicating this project to my grandmother, mother, and daughter. Sure, absolutely. Agnes Boulette was my great grandmother, who was a translator of Machifin Ojibwe at a halfway hospital in Pegwas First Nation. We lost our language because when my grandmother Mary Thomas was born, residential schools were going on, and my great grandmother wanted to hide being indigenous due to shame and fear so unfortunately my great-grandmother never passed on the language to her children which led for all generations after to lose a language so this project allows me to honor her with our work working with our beloved translators who are translating Dr. Steele's script into Indigenous languages, and as well as the use of our Omeka database, which is a tool we are using to preserve the language for future generations to come with complete and utter pride. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. My grandmother uh, never spoke any Machif or French or, or any, any other languages but English after the age of 16, and yet she actually really didn't learn English until she was a late teenager. So uh, I, I can really identify with your great-grandmother's story. Um, so she also, my, Greek, my great, my, sorry, my grandmother married outside of the community as well. So interesting. So uh, the Boulette family, do you know anything about the Boulette family? To be honest, our history is kind of shaken when it comes to the Boulettes. Once she married my grandpa, Albert Thomas, that's the only history, up to where the history that I know, unfortunately. I wish I could find find more, but most of the people have passed away that are kind of knew her or were around in that time. So I don't know, and I wish I really wish I did. Okay, well, you, we could we could probably I could probably help you actually because so those um, those old names are 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 quite you know there's quite a lot of info on uh, you know these different family names but that's fa that's fascinating and then uh, do you mind telling us a little bit about um, where you come from the Pegwis First Nation? Sure, um, I am treaty status from Pegwis First Nation. However, I never actually grew up on the reserve. Um, my mom left just a little town outside of Pegwis First Nation called Hudson. She moved there to the city when she was 14. So I've only been, I've been an urban reserve is what they call it. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, so uh, urban reserve, is that like a common term? It is. For anyone who lives in the city is called urban reserve. And it's, I guess there is quite a controversial between the reserve and urban reserve. We're never looked at the same and we're never quite given the same benefits until the past, I'd say, five years now where we've kind of kind of come to look as like we are the same community, whether we're in the same actually on the reservation or not, we're still the same community, which is kind of really great. Right, right. Um, so when you say, um, when I when I ask the question, Pegwis First Nation, can you tell me, um, you know, your your heritage, you know, how you identify? Do you identify as Cree, Oji Cree? Uh, you know, how do you identify? And and forgive me because I really don't know anything about, um, the, you know, this your your particular uh, First Nation. That's okay. I am Oji Cree, but from my dad's side, I get the Scottish. But I mostly identify with the Oji Cree. Because if anyone knows from Pegwis First Nation, we weren't necessarily there at the start. We were on the St. Peter's Parish, and then we were forced to move to the Pegwis, to Swamplands, technically. And that is when, I guess, the, o the Ojibwe and the Cree kind of combined, and I became Oji Cree. 
Right, that's interesting. Well, the whole prairie families are, are an interesting uh, phenomenon. You know, we have m multiple kinship links, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, goodness, you and I might even be related somehow. One, ever, one never knows. Um, <laughs> Hannah, do you mind telling us a little bit about your family background or, you know, where you come from? Yeah, for sure. So my family background is my mom was raised in Canada. We don't really have I think she's German technically, but there's not really a very uh, distinct cultural link there. Um, so she was born and raised in Alberta. And then my dad is American from Seattle. So he moved up here in the 90s and then they met. And then I've lived in the four different four different Western provinces. <laughs> so I was born in Alberta, spent quite a bit of time living in Saskatchewan, then spent my teenage years in British Columbia, and then now I'm here in Manitoba for university. So. How, how do you identify then? <laughs> do you identify as a prairie girl or, or, or how do you, you know? Con I don't know. I've struggled with this a bit because I think a lot of my formative years were spent in BC. So for a long Yay. time, uh, I would say that I was from mm -hmm. BC. Um, but I, I think I'm becoming more of a prairie person as I live here and yeah, come to love it. Right, more. right. Um, you know, I was um, really interested when I you guys uh, sent me some of your writings, and uh, I, I found some of them so very interesting. Um, you know, I, I, and I also listened to a lot of your podcasts, which I think are fantastic. And Hannah, you know, um, at one point you were well. I know that uh, you you play an instrument. Is that correct? I play a couple. Yeah, what yes, do you play? I do. <laughs> So I, my main instrument would be guitar, um, and then also piano and bass. Oh, wow. And I, I've tried a few others, like banjo and ukulele, wow. so I kind of have wow. on stringed what's instruments. Your, what, what's your favorite? <laughs> yeah. I, it goes between guitar and piano. If I play guitar too much, I'm like, no, piano's better. And then if I play piano too much, I'm like, no, I'm guitar. <laughs> so it depends on my mood. <laughs> Do you write um, original material or do you play other material? Uh, mm, a little bit of both. I definitely do a lot of improv on piano. Um, and then I've written some songs. Cool. But it's it's rare that I finish a song. Say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that any poet would probably say the same thing or any, any artist, you know. What genre? What genre are you interested in? Like, do you, is it jazz? Is it? pop is it you know definitely not jazz not really pop either so my my both of my parents were quite musical growing up my dad did a some kind of folk slash country recordings and stuff so I was always into the folk music scene I would say a bit whether that was traditional okay. or poppy and so growing up my sister was a fiddler so I learned to play by ear and accompany her and then for myself I more did yeah kind of the folk folky style music singer songwriter I guess would be the genre right yeah well you know I was really interested when you guys interviewed Melissa uh, St. Godard yeah um you know you did say that you played fiddle music um uh -huh. but you felt at one point it was just playing tunes that it kind of right. lacked cultural authenticity right you know and could would could you make a comment on that yeah, for sure. So I was brought into the fiddle music scene of Northern British Columbia through my sister, who was 
part of what was called the Valley Youth Fiddlers, a big fiddling group up there. And they would play a wide variety of fiddle tunes, whether that was Celtic or Métis and other just traditional. Um, but we both kind of, as soon as we left BC, left uh, after we graduated high school, we both stopped playing. I think because it wasn't coming from anything like that was actually part of our heritage and right it was just it was just kind of an opportunity to have fun and perform which was great but there was no deep roots kind of like uh what melissa was sharing about was that like why she loves the music so much is it really has brought her into her culture which i don't think was the case for us still was a good thing yeah that's really interesting because uh you know we went my my family went into diaspora and so we lost our culture purposefully my grandmother hid her culture my grandmother used to carry an umbrella in summer so she didn't get too brown and you know i i understand that because of the absolute awful racism that she faced raising a family alone in in the uh, mid uh, sorry, in the through the depression and onwards. So I I, I understand it. Um, having said that, now my daughter is a is a traditional fiddler, and so it it feels like coming home. You know, it feels like coming home, and that that kind of makes me want to ask you, Brina. You know, um, you gave us a lot of personal uh, information about your ceremonial practices, and really fascinating to me. Um, you know, because a lot of times, Brina, I I you know. I was looking through those, you know, you talked about the ghost dance and the sun dance and, you know, the sacred medicines and, you know, uh, different, different uh, ceremonies that you, you let us, uh, you know, know a little bit about. And I thought, wow, you know, I wonder if any of my people, you know, participated in that Um, because my Anishinaabe uh, people, you know, that would have been a hundred and some odd years ago you know, my ancestors. Um, would you feel comfortable sharing some of your, your you know, ceremonial or your practices with us? Because I, I literally know very, very little, if nothing, about the sun dance or the uwipi. Is that how you say it? You whippy. It's, it's pronounced you whippy, but sure. First, I'll introduce myself. Um, my spirit name is Miss Goasin, which means redstone, and I'm from the Black Wolf Clan. And I would love to be able to give you all the teachings of the ceremony but I have that I have been to and I'm involved with. But in my culture, that is not my position to do so. It's for the elders, elders to share and teach. I can, however, tell Great. you some of the wonderful ceremonies that I have been to. I've been attending the Sundance since I was seven years old. I attend a woman's full moon ceremony pretty regularly, except COVID's kind of gotten in the way. I love getting together with my mom's drum group, listening and singing to our traditional songs, particularly the ghost dance songs, which actually in this upcoming year at CMU, I'm going to have them come in and do a workshop. I've also attended a life-changing ceremony called the Uwipi ceremony that I honestly could say was a huge part of me finding the red road. 
And within my daily routine, I am one to always put down tobacco on the land in a time of need or thanks, as well as I'm huge into smudging with some of our sacred medicines, which are sage, sweetgrass, and cedar to help balance my emotions and to keep my home with positive energy. Also with Indigenous culture, laughter is a really big healing tool for someone to be able to <laughs> use. And I, con- I am constantly right. laughing and finding the funny in any situation. Also using gratitude. Something simple as gratitude in your daily life can bring so much more things that are grateful for in your own life. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Then, and I, oh, can sorry. I ask a question? Go ahead. When you, when you say the red road, what does that mean? The right path to life. Okay. Okay. For me, it means like sobriety and recovery and doing well with my own life. But usually it just means the right path. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you, um, is it possible to tell us why, it, why is the road red? I honestly don't know that teaching. No, I'm sorry. I I would, you know what? I would assume because the color red means life. So I would assume it, that's kind of where it comes from. Yeah. Like, uh, like red is in blood, the, you know, the blood of us Mm -hmm. and all of that. That's really interesting. Yeah. You know, I think it's really, uh, you know, we talk, we've talked different times about cultural appropriation and things like that. And so I'm extremely respectful of the, you know, the, the, you know other people's cultures and what is shareable and what is not so thank you um for that you know i think those are wonderful boundaries because i think as indigenous peoples you know a lot of times our cultures have been um kind of used as if they were you know items in a store you know i mean how many times uh, you know for example classical in classical music uh, European composers would come in and just, you know, kind of like pick and choose from different melodies, different practices, etc. So that's one of the reasons why I, in in this opera that we're working on, have never ever used any uh, cultural practices. I've, you know, the the beginning story that uh, that we've had our translators translate. I made that up entirely my own. Because I don't think it's my, it's not my right or, you know, privilege or whatever to share any kind of a, a creation story. You know, we've, we've all, have you got any comments on that, you two? Um, I do, I do, yeah, in a way, I think with our production, we've been very, very careful and sacred towards the Indigenous community. Like one thing, we gift our elders with sacred tobacco. And we also have something called the Memorandum of Understanding. And this should happen way more often when speaking with elders, using our teachings, our stories, and speaking about Indigenous people and their culture. It's important that our production is doing this because it's giving ownership to the Indigenous people who have contributed to this production with being cautious to not end up plagiarizing, which happens way too much in our communities. Right, right, right. Well, this is very much a cross-cultural work. Mm-hmm. You know, Hannah, do you have any observations on this? Uh, having said that, uh, with, it is cross-cultural, but it's Indigenous-led. Mm-hmm. Do, do you have any feelings as a non-Indigenous person? Right. I think that for in my experience of working in this project, I think it's been really important to make sure that we're always first listening to the Indigenous voices that are involved. Um, and not trying to use them in any way for popularity or anything. Like, it's there's a difference between using someone's story in order to make yourself look better and actually genuinely from a place of friendship wanting to help share the story. 
Um, so yeah, I think those would be my thoughts on it. Oh, that's really, that's really interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, which brings me to the, the project that you guys were hired for, which is the database. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've been thinking and reading about that and looking through it, by the way, you know, it's not up for public, uh, for the public yet, but it will be within a couple of weeks. And, and I was just so um, thrilled with it, you guys. I, I wondered if you guys could uh, tell us a little bit about the process. Greena, you know, what's, what's your process with this? Um, yeah, it's quite a complex process. Greena, can you tell us what, sure. you know, so for example, how your, yeah. your end of this? Yeah, so what's been going on so far is we've been, in, every little part of Dr. Steele's script has been selected for either translating Michif, Anishinaabe Mawin, or different types of Indigenous languages. And we've sent them to each different, one of our beloved translators. And from there, our translators will do their best because first of all, our language, our indigenous languages were never, were always oral languages, never written languages. So we usually have right. quite a few different varieties of variations of these languages coming back. And what I do is I put them on to a document with our script, the, the like the line of the script and the different variations of the languages and the translations. And then from there, we have the indigenous translators correct them for any kind of mistakes that I have may have missed because it's not a language that I'm used to working with. And from there... Usually what we do is Hannah and I will go out to see them and do recordings of them speaking the English language, like first, sorry, the script, and then speaking the indigenous language. And, or... Can you tell me, what, sorry to interrupt you, but can you tell me what is it like to meet them? Absolutely fantastic. They're so adorable. Cause like, I don't know, for me, elders, I love being around them. Their energy is always great. And they always have like a lot of stories to share. But since COVID, it's kind of been a little difficult to get together with the elders. So we've only really have went to meet with Jules Chartrand is one. And then we met with three of the lovely ladies like Dr. June Bruce, Dr. Agat Chartrand, and Dr. Lorraine Couture. And I'm telling you, they're so adorable. Like, especially Agat Chartrand. She's this very elderly lady. I love her. And she just, I don't know, she just got a little spicy personality, even though she's so quiet. But yeah, they're really wonderful I people. Know. And mm-hmm. I love, I just love her. You know what? She actually looks a lot like my late mother. And mm-hmm. so when I first, you know, got to know her, I said, may I hug you? It feels like hugging my mom and I miss my mom. (laughs) That's so great. That's so great. Yeah. So then do you, when you go, um, so you said you gift them with tobacco. Mm -hmm, Yes. And then Hannah, can you tell me how, for example, a little bit about how you guys are working with the elders and, and with the texts I give you, for example, or the texts and, and then Hannah, what you do with that. Because, um, you know, eventually this is going to be for the public. So once we've gone and recorded the translators, um, I'll have a lot of video footage. And so I will edit it, cut it into individual lines. So first the translators will have a line in English and then the translated. And I will add subtitles of both the English and the Indigenous language translation that I received. Yeah, mainly just so that if someone's watching it from the database, they're able to, uh, yeah, see the language as well as hear it. And then if they were trying to learn the line, they could just put it on repeat and kind of go over and over. uh, Yeah, listen to it over and over again. 
Um, and then I upload it to the database with a bunch of background information about the translators because we want to be very careful that we're um, documenting and acknowledging all the information that we have. And then, yeah, wait for the launch of the database where all of the 400 or 500 little videos can be seen. <laughs> <laughs> it's a huge, huge project. And I have to say the the reasons we're doing it are, are you know, me, are many. Uh, one is that the, you know, these languages are fragile. And so we're trying to, you know, capture and encourage interest in the languages. But also, you know, um, we also want artists in the future who are going to perform this work, have authentic um pronunciations etc and then scholars as well can study you know it, it is a re it, this is a research project and so I think that that's something that you know we seem to I hope I hope that it's well received um, you know I, I wanted to uh, and also I want to say what a great job you guys are doing I mean really we we, we would need 20 of Neil and, and me to to be able to do what you two are doing because you guys have taken to this like a duck to water, you know, juggling us, which is, a you know, Neil and I are a handful unto ourselves. But then all of these things we throw at you during COVID where we can't show you. I mean, it's fantastic. I just wanted to do a, you know, have a couple of little maybe philosophical questions. And I can see you guys go, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Um, Hannah, I read something, you know, a couple of your papers, and you, you quoted Mother Teresa, mm -hmm. and you said, Mother Teresa wrote, not all of us can do great things, but we can do small things with great love. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to know if you guys have any thoughts on that. So I'll repeat it. She, you know, Mother Teresa wrote, not all of us can do great things but we can do small things with great love. Do you have any reflections on that, say even on this project, with to, to do with this project? And just jump in, either one of you. Yeah, Mother Teresa is someone that I've looked up to for a long time. I am Roman Catholic, so she is definitely someone in our tradition who has been a beautiful example of social justice in a very simple way. And I think coming into this project, I think often we think of reconciliation and you can read the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report. And it seems like all of these very big ideas often that it's like, how are we ever going to get there um, when, it, when, it, when it's still so divided as well? But in my day-to-day -day life and within this project, I think that that quote about doing small things with great love just comes and brings perspective to my own con contribution to this project. And I think this contribution at large or this project at large just because it can seem like while I'm sitting at my desk in my room working on editing video <laughs> it can seem like what like what is this? is this even helping anyone is anyone ever going to watch this but I have to remind myself it's not that's not why I'm doing this I'm doing this because I do believe in reconciliation and I believe that in a small way highlighting these languages and seeking to preserve them is a small step in the larger um, realm of reconciliation and that is actually those steps that ultimately matter if they're done with care and with love and with respect for the people that they're seeking to highlight and combats in a small way the injustices that have been done through the loss of the language. So that's kind of my reflection on it. No, that's really interesting. I actually, I've never heard 
Go ahead, Brina. I've never heard that quote before. I really like that quote. Um, for me, when I hear doing small things with great love, I think of one of the seven teachings, which is love. Mm-hmm. And for me, I try to take all of those seven teachings in my day-to-day life. So for me to practice, right, little small things with great love is practicing my seven teachings. So only good can come out of that and only progression can come out of that. You know, I think a lot of times I've, I've spoken at length about um, truth and reconciliation over the last three to four years years, you know, during the course of this project, I, I have to do a lot of public speaking in front, sometimes in front of 1500 people, you know, and, and I always say, you know, true, uh, truth and reconciliation, first of all, the truth begins with listening and making space. Mm-hmm. And then I, I say reconciliation isn't a bunch of boxes we tick off. Actually, I wanted to talk to you, um, Hannah, I, again, I read from your essay, one of your essays, uh, you know, both of you are, are activists, I guess, to use a bit, you know, I, I, pers- I personally don't really, I actually don't really like that word because it gets kind of um, overused by people who like to say, oh, I'm an activist, but they're not really, you know, um, they, they say, but, I, but anyway, go ahead. I call it an injustice fighter. I call it an injustice oh, fighter excellent. instead of activist. Oh, that's, but, no, yeah. that's cool. That, that's, that's great. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, you know, um, Hannah, you wrote about, I've experienced the paralysis that comes when one encounters the many injustices and issues that appear in our world. And then you wrote, I only have to check my phone to see headlines, I guess you're talking from the newspapers or whatever, which proclaim the in, that injustice reigns and peace is merely an ideal. And in particular, you write, the mainstream media broadcasts a narrative that seems overwhelmingly negative. When faced with this, it's hard to believe that little actions of resistance can make a difference. And you also write, it's hard to work within the realm of uncertainty. Well, I'd really like to know what your your reflections are, you two, on this as young women. In COVID, of all things, my goodness, as if, you know, I keep saying 2020 is the year that keeps giving, right? You know, it, it, and I mean that sarcastically. <laughs> Although I suppose if you think about it, through hardship or challenges, we, we become innovative. So do you have any reflections on like, it's hard to work within the realm of uncertainty. And then, you know, how about as, as a, did you, uh, Brina, did you say as an injustice fighter? Is that what you said? Yes. Yeah. Or just injustice or justice fighter. Yeah, yeah. Or a justice fighter. <laughs> yeah. You know, as a, uh, you know, someone who fights against injustice as you two do, how do you deal with that, you know, overwhelming, okay, where do I start, you know? Mm-hmm. Go ahead, jump in. Um, <laughs> sure, I'll jump in. <laughs> um, I think for me, this is kind of going back a bit to what Brina said about reconciliation, but something that we talk about pretty much in every peace and conflict class that I've taken, but also something that is very much part of my uh, spiritual tradition of Catholicism is just in order to in order to contribute to peace or to help the world in any way, you have to start with yourself. And I think that that also translate into these translates into these times of uncertainty. And I find when I'm overly consumed with the media and what's happening in the world at large I'm not able to be my best self because there's just too many things bombarding me with yeah negative messages 
Um, so for myself, I think really having a time every day where I'm grounding myself in prayer and in reflection and in seeking peace, then I'm able to go and be a peaceful presence in the world around me. And in the world around me, I think it's important to remember that the spaces that we actually impact are our own local spaces, whether that's family or this university. So I think that in uncertainty, for me, it's important to ground myself and also focus on the relationships that are immediately around me. And I think that that also translates into any kind of larger social justice issue. You're not going to go right to the top, you know? Um, you have to start with your own arm's length, whether that's hugging someone or building a friendship with someone who's different than you. I think those are where you have to start with in times of uncertainty. Right. How mm -hmm. about you? I'm very similar sorry I'm very similar to Hannah on that like even though we're very different I wouldn't say belief systems but almost so similar by using my traditional culture I genuinely begin to heal within myself and I believe that if you aren't on the red road yourself then you don't have a clear and creator or God guided path that allow you to heal beyond yourself and saying that as a community you can't really heal as a whole if the individuals themselves still are in need of that red road right especially within certain times right yeah no it's fascinating so you guys I guess we will kind of wrap up at a, with a couple of thoughts mm -hmm. you know uh, uh, an observation I just have you know about back to the subject of truth and reconciliation I again when I speak to any kind of groups indigenous peoples or non-indigenous peoples or in in the case of uh, I'm very lucky you know that sometimes I have a a big hall full of 1500 people of all all backgrounds you know I I always say you know we it took 400 years to get here it's not going to take four years to get out of here right you know so I mm -hmm. I feel very um, positive about us you know as a peoples uh, I call Canada a nation of nations um, you know, this nation of nations, um, this peace and conflict transformation studies that has brought you two to this project to us, you know, I think that is a really positive, positive um, gift for all of us. Uh, you know, who knew? I never knew you two like six months ago. <laughs> you know, ha having yeah. been involved in the project, did it alter your perception at all of, of uh, truth and reconciliation? Or, you know, do you have any um, final thoughts on this particular project? I guess in a way, yes. I would say more of the arts. I never quite considered the arts as a way to express truth and reconciliation. I never knew about it. I never even decided to dig into it. And now that I have, I really can see how the arts can really change just a small piece or a large piece, just the truth and reconciliation. Because there is many factors within this production that we have done, even if it's simple as following the memorandum of understanding or um, sharing our experiences with our co-director who is non-Indigenous and helping him understand those kind of processes and all of those sort of things are slowly working different ways of truth and reconciliation, right? Right, right, right. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, how about you, Hannah? Did, you know, has this altered any of your perceptions working on this or broadened them? Yeah, I think so. I, I've just been really grateful to listen and learn from the indigenous voices that have been part of this project and i think that before this like i just 
don't feel like I had a lot of opportunity for meeting people even. Um, so I think working with Brina and working with you, Dr. Steele, and then the translators has just, yeah, just those simple relationships that this project has given me. Um, I think that's been the main takeaway of just how, yeah, how much building relationship is the beginning and end of reconciliation. Well, listen, you guys, I'm going to wrap it up. I want to congratulate you both on this amazing work that you're doing, juggling not only the multiple tasks that Neil and I give you, but also juggling Neil and, uh, and me, you know, because uh, we're, we're, you know, we're complex. I don't want to, I don't want to stereotype us as artists because we're also very, you know, high functioning business people as well. You know, a lot of people don't realize that about, about successful artists is that we very much also have business hats. But uh, without you two, um, you know, my goodness, we'd be hooped. And so we're very proud of you and want to thank you. And I look forward to more of your podcasts. So uh, I'm going to sign off now. And uh, yeah. yeah, let's hear some of that great fiddle music on this podcast. And <laughs> yeah, okay, well, t uh, take care. Okay, and thanks again for everything. And as Dr. Steele requested, here's Alex Kusterock playing the Red River Jig, a traditional Métis fiddle song. Now it's time for a segment we like to call Anishinaabe Moen Phrase of the Day. You are amazing. Gima ma ka den dagos. Thank you, Marseille and Maguich, for listening to the Leak Your Podcast today. If you liked what you heard, you can find other episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or on our Podbean website. All you need to do is Google Leak Your Podcast. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Louis Riel, H-O-T-N, on Instagram at Heart of the North Riel, and on Facebook at Riel Heart of the North. We hope you have a wonderful day.